welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with Wendy, and we are almost done with the Camino Nascent. We are on day 35, and that means there's just one day left. Yeah, so if all goes according to plan, tomorrow we should arrive in Trancoso, which is the end point of the Camino Nascente. It's not going to be the end of our Camino because we're going to latch on to a couple more Caminos and make it hopefully all the way to Santiago. But yeah, um, by tomorrow we should have walked the whole 645 kilometers of the Camino Nascente. And what we want to talk about in today's episode are some of the special places that we've stayed in as we've been walking this Camino. And this is at both ends of the spectrum, both pilgrim places that are very economical and uh, typical of what you might expect on other Caminos, and also some fancier places as well, which is a bit new for us, but something that we've enjoyed on this Camino too. Yeah, we're not usually ones to splurge you know, while we're on Camino. I know that some people do stay in the Paradores, for example, which are um, kind of luxury hotels, usually in historic buildings in Spain. Um, and yeah, it's just not something that we've done. I mean, we don't splurge very often on things like that anyway in any kind of travel, but particularly on the Camino, we tend to stay in albergues whenever they're available for the most part and, um, you know, just kind of stay in that little world. But this time, in a few cases, we had no choice, really, because accommodation was very limited and the only options were kind of luxury places. So we made the most of it. And um, yeah, we we stayed in some really special places. Some were actually very good value for what they were. They certainly cost more than what a typical albergue would cost, but even so, you know, given the kind of service that you got and all of the facilities, I think that they were very good value. Uh, some of the other places that we stayed in perhaps less so, so we won't be talking about those today. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then the, the albergue, you know, the ones that you said that were on the other end of the spectrum, I think the reason, in some cases, it, part of the reason that they are so special is because they're on this Camino and those kinds of albergues are so rare here. So it really did add to the spirit of the Camino, you know, and it made it feel more like we were on a pilgrimage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you're on a Camino like the Frances, or it doesn't even have to be the Frances, the Primitivo and the Portuguese from Porto, um, you take albergues for granted, right? Yeah. Whenever you want one, more or less, you have one, especially mm -hmm. on the Frances. And so, yeah, when they're few and far between, uh, it does make it special. And I think, you know, in this case, we didn't expect that we would stay in any albergues. And it turned out that there were five places we stayed that you could call albergues. And each of the five has its own kind of story and its own um, display of the spirit of the Camino, as you mentioned. And so I think it's worthwhile just running through those and talking about each of them in turn. Uh, the first one we've actually talked about a little bit before, uh, which is the albergue in Mesquita. This is a very small village, which was the first uh, village in the Alentejo that we came across. So we won't spend too long on, on that in this episode, but it's a four-bed albergue, and it's part of the revitalization of the village, which also includes a restaurant, and it also includes um, some of the houses in the village being renovated and offered a short-term rental uh, for tourists as well. Yeah, or for hikers. I mean, if you're someone who doesn't, 
who prefers to stay in private accommodation and have your own room as opposed to staying in an albergue, you do also have that option in Mesquita because they have several homes that are available for rent as kind of like a B&B, although I don't think they would provide breakfast, but you know, just having your own little house that you can stay in. But yeah, for those who do want the albergue experience, it's there. And yeah, it is currently four beds. I had read something earlier that had said that it was more, I think maybe six beds. So I'm guessing that they took out some of them to provide for more social distancing within the albergue. So maybe in the future, there will be a few more beds available if it's needed. I mean, right now, to be honest, it's not really necessary to have more than four. Right. And there was quite a bit of space uh, in the room where the bunks were. So you could easily see that they could put two more bunks or four more bunks in there. And there was also a, another room um, where in a pinch you could also add some extra bunks as well if you absolutely had to. But yeah, like you said, it's probably not necessary at this stage. Although it is interesting that that albergue is also on the GR15, which is a, a long-distance hiking route in addition to the Camino de Santiago. So it's not just pilgrims, but also other hikers who can stay there as well. Yeah, and I read through the guest book to see, you know, who had stayed there and what they had written about it. And some of the people who stayed there were hiking the GR15. And so for the rest of the Alentejo, for the most part, we didn't come across any pilgrim accommodation, uh, except for one case. And this was just an absolutely extraordinary experience. Um, and looking back on it still, I'm just amazed at, at the whole thing. So we'll try to set it up. Uh, and it's in a village called San Miguel de Meshed. And this is a village that is the next stage out of Évora, Évora being the biggest city on the Camino Nascente. And really, you know, because the distance between villages is quite long in the Alentejo, you often kind of, you sort of have to stay in a certain village um, because it'll either be 10 kilometers to the next one or 10 back to the previous one. You don't have a, a nice four or five kilometers between villages sometimes. Um, and so, San Miguel de Machete is kind of the, the place you have to stay at the end of this stage. Um, but there's no traditional accommodation. There are no hotels or anything like that. And there's not really any reason for there to be any hotels. No, it's a fairly nondescript village, I think it would be safe to say. So, yeah, there's not really anything that would attract people there, you know, other than pilgrims who are walking the Camino. So it's understandable that there wouldn't be hotels or anything else. And so it's one of these places where the official guide that we've talked about a few times they basically say, call the Junta de Freguesia, the parish council, and they'll arrange accommodation for you. And, you know, to the credit of the whole Camino, every time we've had to do that, a solution has presented itself. Whenever there's been a gap in more traditional accommodation, there's been some kind of option, some person with a room or something like that. So we called the Junta de Freguesia, and then they told us to get in touch with this woman, Donna Joana. And so you called her and she said, yes, we, we have accommodation for you. And we didn't know what it was going to be like at all. And then we read from a, a previous blog, I think we've mentioned this before, that a Spanish guy walked six stages of this Camino once uh, two years ago. And he wrote about it quite in detail. And this was one of those stages. And he stayed in the retirement home in the village, mm -hmm. which was okay in 2019, uh, in 2021, <laughs> it's not really okay to stay in a retirement home. Yeah. And this is, you know, a nursing home where very elderly people are staying. So obviously they're at extremely high risk uh, for catching COVID-19 and yeah, having random pilgrims walk in there and mix with the elderly people in the nursing home is obviously not a good idea. 
So that was not available anymore. But, um, but we didn't know that. No. So we thought, okay, maybe they're going to put us in the retirement home. Yeah, and actually she, uh, Donna Joanna, you know, the person who I had called who said, yes, uh, you know, I'm going to provide accommodation for you. She had given me kind of general directions uh, saying you're going to pass a cemetery, you're going to pass a church, etc., etc. And I was, you know, trying to follow her instructions over the phone and she's very talkative. So she was talking a mile a minute and I wasn't sure exactly where it was going to be, but I thought, okay, it's a small village. So we'll just ask around once we get there or we'll call her if we need to and it'll be fine. But when I started looking at the map, um, the map, the nursing home was marked on, on Google Maps, and it did seem like it was more or less around the place where she was telling us to go. So then I thought, oh, okay, maybe we are actually staying in the nursing home. And it was also in uh, an app that we've been using uh, for this Camino as well. It was listed as the only accommodation in San Miguel de Machete. But it turned out it was not the nursing home where we were staying. It was her house basically. Yeah, and even beyond that, what she's done is she has a, a quite a modest house, and it's just a house in the village, and she has what you might call a backyard, but it's just a sort of cemented area, outdoor area, mm -hmm. and her kitchen is actually in this outdoor area, uh, and so it just has a, a couple of sinks, and she's got some um, portable stoves that she's put in there, so it, it you know, it, it's, it's not a fancy house by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. and she has built a, an annex in her backyard for pilgrims mm -hmm. and it's just amazing so last year once the pandemic had broken out and the nursing home no longer became an option she housed nine pilgrims for the year just in the regular part of her house and then decided over the winter that she was going to get this annex built and really talking to her she sort of said that she had the idea that she wanted to host pilgrims for years yeah. Um, again, she talks a lot and I didn't always follow everything that she said um, because it was all in Portuguese and, you know, my Portuguese is not perfect and sometimes I have trouble with different people's accents. But um, yeah, from what I understood, she used to live in Evora and then she bought, you know, um, the house where she is now in San Miguel de Machete, but it was very much a place that needed renovations. It was not really inhabitable, I don't think, when she bought it. And so she's been doing these ongoing renovations uh, for for a long time now and but yeah she definitely said that she she had the idea from the beginning that she was going to create she called it a hefugio like a, a refuge uh, for pilgrims and you know she said she had told people that 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 was what she was going to do and they're like what do you mean you're going to create a, like a shelter for cats and dogs? Like, what is this refuge? <laughs> and she said, no, no, it's for pilgrims walking the Camino de Santiago because she is a pilgrim herself and she has walked several different routes, not the Camino Nascente. I think she's walked smaller, shorter routes, um, but she's, you know, a, a very devout a religious person from what I could see and um, also, you know, loves the Camino and wants to help pilgrims along the way and so yeah she's gone to amazing lengths to do that right and she says she still needs to do all these other renovations on her actual house but she wanted to get this uh this little albergue uh, up and running and so there's just one room there's a double bed and there are also two bunk beds so she can have four people um depending on the 
exact makeup of the people, but she can have four people at once. Yeah, she did actually show us another room as well that had a bed in it. I don't know if you saw it. Maybe you didn't when she was just taking us, when she first took us into our annex. She also opened another door that was off of that courtyard and she said, this is not really for sleeping, but in an emergency, if I have to, I can put someone in here because there was a bed in there as well. Which again is funny because the likelihood that she would have more than four people mm. and need that is is very low. I mean, it's possible you could have a group of five or six pilgrims, I suppose. But basically, mm -hmm. she had these nine last year. And if we understood correctly, and again, she speaks very fast, uh, <laughs> and we'll talk your ear off in Portuguese, we were the first people to stay in this annex. Yeah, yeah, I believe that we were, yeah, because definitely she was saying, she was asking us about the bathroom, you know, how how well did the shower work, did the did the water heat up, because we were the, we were definitely the first people to test that bathroom, so I imagine we must have been the first people to stay in that room. And the whole thing was donativo, and mm -hmm. so it was very much in the spirit of the Camino, and so, you know, she's not in it for money at all, I mean, she no. must have spent quite a lot to actually build this, and she's not going to recoup that at all, mm -hmm. um, but... You know, she was very happy to have us there, and we were happy that, you know, she she's getting use out of her albergue, at least for one night. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's something I, I felt about her place and, and uh, about the place in Mesquita as well, and the others that we're going to talk about is, you know, I really want more pilgrims to come because they these people have put so much effort into, you know, creating these places to welcome pilgrims that I really want it to be worth their while in some way you know even if it's not about recouping the financial investment but i just want them to to see pilgrims you know do actually use it yeah because what you need to build a camino and that's what's happening here is you need these passionate people uh, you know along the way who mm -hmm. provide these services or do other things or welcome pilgrims in some way um and and she's just an excellent example of that <music> And so it's interesting that the Alentejo is the big focus of this Camino, but really those were the only two uh, pilgrim accommodation options in the entire Alentejo. So we were walking for about three weeks and we just had the one albergue in Mesquita and then the Donativo of Dona Joana. Um, but since we've been in the Betas, we've stayed in three albergues. Uh, yeah, so it definitely seems to be, you know, more common as you, I guess that's, you know, understandable as you get closer to Santiago, there are going to be more pilgrims because people are more likely to start, say, in Evora, for example, as opposed to starting all the way back in Tavira. Not many people have the time to do that. Um, and so also the Evora section, or from Evora, was launched one year earlier, so they've mm -hmm. had a kind of one-year head start, and the way marking for Tavira to Evora wasn't completed until 2019, whereas the, the launch from Evora was in 2018. Mm-hmm. And so the first of these albergues in the Betis that we stayed in was in a village called Amalelus. And you were particularly taken with this village. I was, yeah. I mean, it's also kind of a nondescript village, like San Miguel de Machete. But, um, well, I think that's the point of it. Yeah. I mean, if it was a really beautiful village, then it would, be, it would become more touristed somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of place you would never visit, never consider visiting, and would yeah. never have heard of if it wasn't on the Camino. Yes, and I think that that's why I loved the experience so much, because I knew that we could never have had that experience any other way, except by being pilgrims and by staying there in the makeshift albergue that they have created for pilgrims. And yeah, I guess we'll just explain a little bit about what the albergue is. Uh, first of all, the town only has 60-something inhabitants. And 
uh, and it's always had about that number. It's always been a very small village, and so it has actually maintained its population pretty well because it's quite close to Castelo Branco, which is a, a large city that has lots of employment opportunities, so people can very easily commute if they want to and, and keep living in the village, but also have those economic opportunities of the bigger city. Um, so anyway, there is a... Uh, association, like a cultural and recreation association uh, that has a center. Um, and originally that building was a barn that was owned by, I believe, the great-grandfather of the current president of the association, whose name is Sebastian, who was our host. And, um, I mean, to be honest, he's probably a big part of why I fell in love with the village, because he is so incredibly proud of his village and you know you could see how much he was enjoying showing it off to us he's written two books one all about his village of 60 people and one that's about his village and also uh i think four or five other villages in, nearby and so i i didn't have time to read them all, but I did look through both of those books and, you know, got to really understand the very, very localized history of everything that had happened there. And, um, yeah, so in the, the, the center, um, it's for, you know, events. They have an annual festival, as basically every village does in Portugal. They also have a oven festival, which is something very particular to Amarelos, uh, because they have a community oven, which we have talked about before, and theirs was a really cool one, and it's still in operation. But Sebastian was telling us that at some point, the women started arguing with each other because they all wanted to use the communal oven at the same time, and they couldn't agree on, you know, who got to use it when. And so people started building their own private ovens in their houses or in their yards. And so now this uh, village of 60 people has almost 20 ovens. Uh, which is quite extraordinary. Like, normally you would not have that many of these big wood-fired ovens in a tiny village. And he has a map showing where they all are. Yeah. <laughs> and he's organized this festival, this oven festival, uh, that I believe they've had at least three different runs of the festival, and hopefully it'll get up and running again, you know, once the pandemic has subsided. Um, but yeah, they open them all up to the public and they bake bread and bake other different uh, pastries and things inside them. And, you know, it's it's another way for the village to make some money, for one, uh, to keep the association running uh, because they're selling drinks and food and things like that. Um, and yeah, so in the center, which is basically, you know, kind of the focal point of, of the annual festival, they put a few, they're not really even beds, they're like cots. They're little fold-up things, very narrow things that can kind of stand up partially. So it's like a, a lounge chair or like a sunbed that you would sunbathe in, you know, at a pool, say. Um, but then you can fold it all the way down and then you can sleep on it. And so that's where we slept. Yeah. And they, he said they had three of them. Um, yeah. we only saw the two that they sort of set up for us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and yeah, it was quite extraordinary. So it's not what you would consider as a normal albergue. Basically, it's this kind of center that's not really used very much. There's just lots of tables and chairs just kind of all packed up. And then in the corner, there were just these couple of makeshift quasi beds for us. But mm-hmm. that was brilliant. Yeah, they were actually more comfortable than I expected them to be. I thought I wasn't going to sleep well at all. But uh, yeah, I did sleep pretty well. And he said that they are hoping that they will have more of a proper albergue in the future. I don't know exactly what his plans are, if he wants to build a whole new building, or perhaps they have another vacant building that they think that they convert, they could convert into an albergue, but that would be the sole use of that building, um, as opposed to sharing it with the center. But, you know, I think it's amazing what they've done now in such a tiny village with such few resources. Um, to be able to host pilgrims. And the other thing is that they already had uh, toilets for both men and women mm-hmm. attached to the building, but then they added a shower in the women's toilet Yeah. Um, when they converted it into an albergue, specifically that they realized that they needed a shower, but they didn't really have any other space for it. And so it's... Um, you know, it's a very basic shower inside the women's toilet, but... Um, but it worked just fine. Mm-hmm. It was very hot water. Um, yeah, it was actually fairly spacious inside there. It's just that, you know, it's kind of weird that you're standing like right next to the toilet and all the water is falling on the toilet as well. But but whatever, it was great that, mm-hmm. you know, they made do with what they had and we were very grateful for the experience. And they also cooked dinner for us because uh, there's no restaurant in the village. The only business of any kind is the bakery, which Sebastian and his wife actually own together. And it's quite a large bakery. They have several employees. It's not just for the village of Amadelos. They, um, you know, they have one of the the white bakery vans, the bread vans that uh, travel around to the different villages. So they also service other villages around them. But it's not normally a place that uh, provides, you know, dinners or meals of any kind. But they did prepare a special meal for us, which we really appreciated. Definitely. And of the albergues that we're talking about today, this was the earliest to open, opened in May of 2018. So basically right at the time when this Camino was launched. Mm-hmm. And since then, so it's now been three years, uh, they have had 46 pilgrims, including us. And mm-hmm. obviously the pandemic didn't help, but I don't really think it hurt that much. I mean, there aren't many people on this Camino at all. But it it just is interesting to show that the numbers are so low, but yet people have gone to this eff- effort to... You know, to build these mm-hmm. albergues and hopefully the numbers continue to just creep up and creep up and it, it makes them feel that it was worthwhile to do it. Yeah, I really hope so. Because actually those numbers are pretty high compared to the numbers at the next couple of places that we're going to talk about, which have really had very few pilgrims so far. Right. So the next one is in a town called Ferhu, or again, another village. Um, and this was just uh, four or five days ago. And the albergue there is the old priest's house. Yeah, the... I think it's called the Casa Parroquial, the parochial house. So yeah, the the priest used to live there, uh, and then that priest passed away some years ago, I believe. I don't know exactly when, and so they have a different priest now. But the current priest doesn't live in the village, and so that house was no longer needed, and so they decided to turn it into an albergue. Right. So they just started setting this up right when the pandemic hit, and so then they weren't really able to continue on with it. Um, to the degree that they would have wanted to. We were the third pilgrims or the third group of pilgrims uh, who had stayed there. Um, And so there's a room with a double bed, which we were given, which was perhaps the 
bedroom of the priest. Yeah, I would guess that it was. And then there's a couple of other rooms where they've set up some bunks. They haven't really finished doing it yet, so they don't really have mattresses for some of those other bunks. Yeah, um, you could see that you know they were still in the process of, of putting things together. Uh, we only had one pillow on our bed, for example, um, and we asked about it, and they're like, oh yeah, no one's ever asked for a second pillow. <laughs> um, but we made do with you know blankets and other things that they had in some of the other rooms. Uh, there's also a kitchen, which is, yeah, more or less functional. They had a few pots and pans and utensils. They didn't have any washing up liquid. Um, so, you know, those are things that they'll they'll realize as they go along. And But they're really trying hard to, um, you know, to make it a welcoming place for pilgrims. And they were incredibly welcoming and also very helpful to us because they actually helped us get new credentials which we really needed because we were running out of space. Right. So we have the special Holy Year uh, Pilgrim Passports or credentials. And it turns out that there's only five and a half pages uh, for stamps mm-hmm. in these credentials. There's lots of other pages talking about different routes and, and basically, you know, filled with text that probably shouldn't be there. And the kind of irony of running out of space on this Camino is that it's really hard to get stamps. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been trying, you know, to get a stamp every day. And there have been days where we've been unable to do it. We've asked at our accommodation and we've asked sometimes at a restaurant. At a museum. And, right. We've asked wherever we can. Um, a couple of times we got a business card mm-hmm. and we stapled that in. Um, one time, which was really quite amazing in Myrtilla, they also didn't have a stamp, but the owner of the hotel was an urban sketcher and he sketched two little two little sketches, two little drawings, and painted them with watercolors into our uh, Pilgrim Passport, which is exceptionally memorable for us. Um, but basically, we've struggled to find these stamps for the most part. I mean, we've done okay, but it turns out even with that in mind, we have actually almost filled our Pilgrim Passports. And we asked them if they knew where we could get new ones, and they didn't. And then they just kind of, the guy we were dealing with, I think, Gilberto, um, just made a call and then he said oh it's okay we're going to get uh we're going to get them to send them to you from lisbon if you give us an address in about four or five days where you're going to be they'll send them to you and so we then booked something in francosa which is the end of the nascent and we then told them that address and then they had it sent and now we've been in dialogue with the hotel and they said that they've arrived yeah. So we're, we're going to go there tomorrow, and apparently there are these new Pilgrim passports waiting for us. <laughs> Which is fantastic, and that was, you know, totally above and beyond what they would have been expected to do for us, but they, they did it. And so, yeah, we were really... Yeah, I really loved that that place, too. There was a beautiful view from the balcony, and I just loved sitting there and kind of, you know, watching the villagers walk by. And they were also, there were a couple of elderly people who were also just standing out at their gate or sitting at their window and also just watching everything go by. And we felt like we were part of it for a little while. And that was also really special. And the other interesting thing that happened there was that some schoolgirls knocked on the door almost as soon as we'd arrived. And we were, it had been a very long day for mm-hmm. us, uh, 32. 33 kilometers I think and we sort of hadn't gotten settled yet and we hadn't had showers and anyway and these girls knocked on the door and they wanted to interview us for (laughs) a project that they're doing on pilgrimage and so we said can we do it a little bit later because we just need to get ourselves uh, washed up and settled and so eventually we did do that with them and that was fun it was a little bit um, 
scary because they recorded the audio and it was all in Portuguese. And mm -hmm. so they're going to play, you know, our Portuguese, I guess, to their uh, classmates or, or whatever it is when they make this presentation. Um, but that was cool because they wanted to know about pilgrimage and about what it's like. And they asked some interesting questions. Mm -hmm. um, and we also spoke with their teacher and he seemed quite knowledgeable about the Camino. Yeah. And he had been to the launch of this route. Uh, in 2018 in Évora. And so he showed us some pictures. And the president of the Republic of Portugal, Marcelo, who's still the president, was there uh, mm -hmm. to inaugurate the Camino Nascente. And he has this picture of Marcelo with a walking stick or a crutch or a, a cane, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be the walking stick that Queen Isabel used when she made the pilgrimage in the early 14th century. Yeah, and uh, so he was saying that she had actually walked this route, the Communicense route. Um, I don't know if that has been historically verified or not, because, you know, we had heard from other people saying this is actually not a historical route at all. It turns out, you know, I think that that's probably not true, because we've heard about a few different ways that people have, you know, been looking into the records and, and finding different um, evidence of, of people having walked this route. And perhaps it was the queen herself who, who walked the Camino Nascent back in the 14th century. Right, because she, we actually uh, saw her tomb mm -hmm. last year on the standard uh, Portuguese way, the Camino Portuguese, and it's in Coimbra at uh, a monastery called Santa Clara Nova. And that whole monastery is sort of dedicated to Queen Isabel. But you had read that she actually died in Estremoz, which is on this Camino. Mm -hmm. And I've also read previously that it's possible she did a second Camino or a second pilgrimage to Santiago, um, although it's not as well documented as the first one and, or it's disputed. Uh, so it's possible that maybe Estremoz is the link here and that she did mm -hmm. one from Estremoz or, or something like that. The final albergue that we stayed in was in a place called Trinta, again, another village. And this was just a couple of nights ago. And uh, that was one that opened just last year. And really, of all these albergues, that's the one that's most like what you would think an albergue is. Yes, I think that's fair to say. Um, yeah, because like we said, one was in the priest's house. One was in this recreation center with these makeshift cots. Um, the one in Mesquita, I'd say, is, is more or less an albergue as well. But the Trinta albergue is on a whole different scale. It's huge. Uh, they have 20 beds inside there, and they have a huge kitchen that's fully furnished. They have a, like a living room area with a couch and a TV. So um, it's actually much better than what you would imagine a, let's say, municipal albergue to be. Because, you know, when you're on the, the Frances, for example, you just kind of take for granted that the municipios, you know, as we tend to call them, are, are going to be there. And yeah, they're cheap, but they're generally not very good. And, um, you know, you just, I had never really thought about what went into creating those and when and how they were created. You just kind of expect that they are there and kind of take them for granted and maybe don't really appreciate them very much because you think the private albergues are probably going to be much better. But in this case, I mean, this is basically what it is. Uh, you know, we don't refer to it as municipio in Portuguese, but it was created by the Junta de Freguesia, which is the local government of this village. But, you know, you think government and you think like big, large scale, kind of cold, impersonal things. And that was 
really the exact opposite of our experience because it was the president of the Junta de Freguesia himself, Carlos, who uh, welcomed us to the albergue. And, you know, he's been behind all of this and he's just one person. He doesn't have anyone else working for him or with him. Um, as part of the Junta de Freguesia, he's doing everything for the village, and he has another full-time job in Guarda that's completely unrelated to being the president of the Junta de Freguesia. Um, and this is a village of about 300 people, so it's quite small, but he, it has a lot of services, and he was very proud of that. You know, when I talked to him on the phone to reserve the albergue, I asked if there was a restaurant there, and he said, yes, we have everything. We have a restaurant, we have a bank, we have a pharmacy, we have everything that you could possibly need. And it's true, they do. So yeah, it just gave me a new respect for for local governments on this very small scale, because, you know, there are real people involved. It's not just, you know, national governments and then civil servants who are employed by them. Like, it's it's people who are very connected to the village and very proud of the village and want to help it succeed. Yeah, and Carlos spoke with us for quite some time. Yeah, totally. Uh, we had a couple yeah. of drinks with him um, because yeah. he arrived, basically, he arrived from his other job. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, he was a little bit late, you know, working at that job. And so we arrived in the village before him. Uh, and so we went to one of the cafes there and he joined us there and we, we talked with him for quite some time. And it was funny because we didn't even, we didn't realize he was the president of the Junta de Freguesia, and we just said, "Oh, no. you the, you the sort of the albergue guy." And he's like, "No, I'm the only guy. There's no, we don't have a separate person for the albergue because, uh, even though they have twenty beds, they now have had, including us, six pilgrims." Yeah. Since, since they opened last year. I think it was last yeah. July. It was July of 2020 when they opened, yeah. So it's it, been nearly a year. Unfortunately, they've only had six pilgrims. However, they are also using the albergue for, uh, to house some workers who are working on some projects in the village as well. Yeah, which makes total sense, you know, the, and I'm glad that they could find a way to recoup some of the huge investment costs because it's, you know, it's a very large place and it's obvious that everything is brand new and, like, it must have... Uh, been quite expensive to put it all together so uh, I'm glad that they they're able to do that he seemed not totally happy with that arrangement because um, there were just two of the workers who were staying there at the time when we were there and so when Carlos brought us in he saw that you know several of the other beds where where other workers had previously been staying were not made up yet and they had just left the blankets there and he wasn't too happy with that and I, you know, could understand that some pilgrims might feel a little bit funny about sharing their space with construction workers. But, I mean, the guys were totally friendly. They actually didn't spend any time there at all. They just slept there. I believe that we saw them eating in the same restaurant where we ate dinner that night. But they came in very late, went straight to bed, and then, you know, got up in the morning around the same time we did and were out the door. Like, we hardly saw them at all. So... It wasn't. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't an issue, and I'm. I'm glad that they were able to make use of that space in some way during you know these strange times when there aren't very many pilgrims walking any caminos. But I really hope that more people start walking this one and that they stay in Trita. And I think they they will. You know, because there's this an amazing albergue there. I think he's been really smart in. Uh, creating that because now Trinta is going to be an end of stage for everyone who walks it. You know, that's going to be a really obvious place to stay. Um, and so that's going to set the village up well in the future. 
um, to to benefit from pilgrims if they come, which I hope they do. Yeah, I think without Trinta, the stage from Belmont to Guarda would be 36 kilometers and there's a lot of mountains, there's ups and downs in that. So it's more than what most people would want to do. Uh, so yeah, there needs to be an intermediate uh, place there and then Trinta yeah, is, is perfect for that. But it could have been somewhere else. Like we did pass a few other villages, so it could have been, I think, Famalicão, was that also that same day? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it could have, but there's nowhere to stay there, I don't think. But, you know, because he took the initiative and created this albergue and made Trinta the place where people are going to stay, then, you know, I think that that was smart and I hope that it that it pays off in the long run. Yeah, and actually just on that, I have received a couple of random messages from random people on Instagram while we've been walking who are aware of the route and who've maybe walked it before, who have walked it before. And they're just making some comments here and there, uh, both Portuguese people. Or one, in fact, one is a Spanish person. One is writing to me in Spanish and the other is writing to me in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And one of them wrote, and said he sort of because i've been posting a picture every day he kind of knows where we are and where we're going and he gave us the contact of somebody to call in guarda and said that person helped him uh find somewhere to stay in trinta before the albergue was there yeah and carlos mentioned that too he said that they had been hosting pilgrims before they had the albergue ready in some other building i don't know exactly what it was i think it was probably you know something more makeshift maybe with cots like in amarelos but yeah they weren't turning people away they were allowing people to stay even before they had the albergue. Another thing to mention is that there's really bad telephone network connection in uh, Amarelo. So if you call, in Trinta. sorry, in Trinta, yeah. So we, you know, had to try to call several times before we were able to reach Carlos. So it's best to use WhatsApp because if he's on a Wi-Fi network, he'll be able to get, you know, calls or messages on WhatsApp. But phone phone is really tricky there. Yeah. And so it was just interesting that this guy who contacted me had sort of said he'd found difficulty finding accommodation on that stage. And then this other person had helped him in Trinta. And then but then he also said, oh, but now they have the albergue in Trinta. So you're you're all fine. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's the point of it. And, and so, yeah, now it, it has become this destination where you know that you have a bed there. So those are our five albergues that we stayed in in 35 nights on the Communion Center. And as we mentioned at the beginning, we've stayed in a couple of other special places as well. And usually in Portugal, if you're in a sort of a tourist town or a town that has a few hotels, if there's a budget hotel for a double room, you're looking at about 30 to 35 euros. Mm-hmm. And so we've done that whenever we've had the opportunity. But it's turned out on this Camino that there's been quite a lot of places where we haven't been able to do that. No, because the accommodation that was available was not budget hotels. It was places that are more set up for rural tourism, for, you know, like a um, like a countryside house, a farmhouse that's been converted into something for tourists where people can go and get away for the weekend and relax and de-stress. And um, so the prices for that are significantly higher than for the kinds of hotels that we would normally stay in. Right, which are already higher than an albergue that we would stay in. Yeah, yeah. And so you've kind of got the albergues, which the ones that we've mentioned here, we've been paying seven, eight euros uh, per person. Uh, The budget hotels, we pay 30 to 35. These kind of rural hotels, we're kind of paying, you know, 40 to 50 and maybe 55. and so then when it comes to splurging a little bit more beyond that, it seems somehow a bit more reasonable. 
if you're on the Frances and you're in municipal albergues the whole time paying five euros a bed, uh, you know, the idea of paying 70 or, or 80 euros seems like a lot. But, uh, you know, a few times we were sort of stuck even in a place like uh, Beja, which has a lot of accommodation. There was an event going on, a NATO event going on, and we couldn't um, find accommodation at the really budget level. And so we paid 55 euros for a place that was fine enough, but we would have been happy you know, to pay half that for, for a budget place. Mm -hmm. um, and so there have been a few occasions where we've had the opportunity to pay a little bit more and to stay in a, a special place. And that's something that we haven't really done on previous communos, but I think we might try to do it uh, <laughs> in the future because these ones uh, in particular were, were really great. And so the first was in a town called Alvito in the Alentejo, and the castle there has been turned into a hotel. And it's been turned into what's called a posada, which is the Portuguese equivalent of the Spanish parador. And so it's a historic hotel, essentially. And so the castle was built uh, in the uh, 1490s, uh, so in the late 15th century into the early 16th century. And, you know, it's not the most incredible hotel, but the fact that a uh, uh, castle rather, but the fact that it's a hotel, mm -hmm. you know, inside a castle, you know, makes it amazing. And it's interesting that when you see a picture of it, you know, on, on booking.com or, or anywhere, they'll show this one particular tower, which has these three very distinct windows, uh, one on each floor. Mm -hmm. And the windows are all different from each other. And the top two are arabesque windows. They're, they're in the Mudeja style. So uh, they have these arches and they look more like Muslim architecture, but they're different from each other. And then on the bottom level, on the first floor, there's a more standard Portuguese or, or European window. And so this is kind of the highlight of the castle is this one tower with these three windows. And so we were trying to shorten our stages at that time because the, that stage usually goes further to Viana du Alentejo, but you were having some problems with your plantar fasciitis. And we'd heard that Alvito was a nice town and, and it had some other churches as well to visit. And so we shortened the stage and then we saw on booking.com that you could book this castle. And, and I believe that was actually the only accommodation available in Alvito currently. We did see a couple of other guest houses, but they were both closed. Uh, I don't know. One of them said it was temporarily closed during the pandemic and the other one, I couldn't tell if they were planning to reopen or not. But yeah, that was the only option that we had. And the room was 78 euros. And we thought, hey, stay in a castle for 78 euros, that's not bad. Um, because, like I said, we've been paying, you know, these kind of 50, 55-ish for some places that were just kind of standard, you know, three-star yeah. hotels. Yeah, uh, we even paid 65. I mean, that was a bit later after Alvito, but we paid 65 once for one of those rural tourism places. So we made the booking and then we were excited about it. And I think the check-in time was 4 p.m. But because we decided to break up the two stages, uh, the one stage into two, uh, we didn't have that far to walk that day. So and, we arrived quite and so early. we arrived quite early, but we contacted them and said, look, we're going to arrive around midday. Is that okay? And we're pilgrims and it's going to rain in the morning. And so is it possible that we can at least leave our bags or can we check in early if that's possible? And they said, yeah, it might be possible. Just come and, and we'll see what we can do. And so we went there and, you know, it's, it's a bit funny being a wet pilgrim <laughs> going into this castle hotel this posada you know one of these great hotels in portugal um, but they were very very nice to us mm -hmm. and the woman at the reception was sort of checking to see if there was a room available because they were doing cleaning and she didn't think there was a room we might just have to wait a little bit and then she then she was sort of looking at a computer and she said no i'm going to switch your room and we've got one for you and it's ready right now and she gave us the, the keys and we went to the room and it was one of the three rooms in the tower with yeah. the windows that looked out. 
which I think must have normally gone for higher than what we paid. I think we must have paid, or we what we booked was probably the the cheapest room, you know, of the ones available in the castle. And I can't imagine that the tower room fell into that category. <laughs> but we took it. And we were very yeah. happy to have it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a great place to stay. It was a beautiful room. There was some, you could still see some flourishes, some stone parts um, to the room. Mm-hmm. And then we had this view out over the town uh, from our window. So that was very much worth it. Yep. Um, and the second place that we stayed in, which was just absolutely amazing, is called The Place. And it's in a, uh, a place called Evremont, which was actually the stage after the Donativo Albergue with Donna Joana. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of went from one extreme to the other, I think, there. Um, and so we stayed at her Donativo, and then we walked the next day, and we stayed at this expat-run hotel called The Place. Now, Evremont is uh, a... Well, I mean, Mont is a kind of hill, mm-hmm. and so it, it's a little bit of an unusual place because there's a village at the bottom of the hill, and that has, I believe, around 300, 400 people I think 400. live in the village. And then... There's a castle on top of the hill, and then there's a, a very small village inside the walls of the castle, and that has maybe 40 people from memory. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. And there's only one place to stay inside that smaller village inside the castle, and it's this place called The Place. It's run by the Scottish woman and her South African husband. And Evremont is sort of reasonably well-known, I guess, and there are some other places to stay that are kind of in the countryside around that area, and again, there are these places like what you mentioned before, they're kind of these Casa Rural places. They have swimming pools and things like that. And so we looked into some accommodation at Vermont because that was the end of our stage. We didn't really know where else to stay and everything was really expensive. Yeah. Um, and then there were a couple of other places that hadn't reopened yet after the pandemic. But basically on booking, the only place um, cost more than, than the place we ended up staying in. And in the end, we I think uh, the place only accepts, especially on the weekend, two nights, uh, a booking of two nights. And so we couldn't see it for the date we wanted on booking.com. So we thought we'd missed it. And then you called and and she said that she would she would have us for that one night. It was a Friday night. And we paid 80 euros for that. But it was just an amazing place. They just set up all of these terraces mm-hmm. and you just have incredible views over the Alentejo. The view is absolutely spectacular. And that, that makes the place. I mean, the, the rooms are also very nice and the people are very nice. They have a restaurant and they make wonderful homemade pizza. Like the whole experience was great. But the view is it makes i mean that that alone makes it worth it it was funny because on their website you know they say things like oh you get this great view of the alentejo countryside and then we kind of thought well you know we've been walking in the alentejo countryside for two weeks now so you know is that really something that's going to be special for us or not but it really was just because Mm -hmm. that part around evremont just happened to be i think the most beautiful of the alentejo yeah, and we're not usually seeing it from an eagle-eye view either. You know, we're usually right in the middle of it, walking amongst the oak trees and and uh, cork trees and things. Whereas to see it from above, you're way up on this hill and you can see so far uh, around you in every direction. And there's a castle like right next to the place as well. Uh, um, so yeah, it's one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen in Portugal, honestly. And, you know, we noticed on the stage coming in and on the stage going out that that particular area just happened to be a little bit different in terms of the the scenery. It was still the same kind of uh, things like olive trees and oak trees and cork trees, as you mentioned, but it was just, there was more greenery and it was a little bit more forest-like 
and you know mm-hmm. a lot of the times on the Antigua you just have these these long plains that go forever with sort of golden brown wheat stalks and it wasn't exactly it wasn't like that it was it was a lot greener than that mm-hmm. and so yeah the view was really spectacular yep and the final place to talk about uh was a hotel convent and so it was a convent that was built in the early 17th century in a town called Alta de Champ and it's now been converted into a hotel so it's not one of these posadas it's not one of these kind of official uh you know government hotels um mm. but it was very tastefully done it's a four-star hotel and it was only 60 euros yeah which is an incredible value and it easily could be a posada it's the same type of um of accommodation uh it's just for whatever reason it's it's run by a different entity um, but yeah, 60 euros. I mean, to think of all of the, you know, the really crappy budget hotels that we've stayed in, like when we lived in Switzerland, for example, where you can't even get a, a, a double room for 60 euros. No, we paid more than that for two dorm beds once in Zermatt. Right. Um, <laughs> so when you put it in, in context like that, it really seemed like incredible value. And again, it was one of those things where we came in as, you know, as our kind of dirty pilgrims. And it was a hot day that day. It was or for the nascent. It was about 30 degrees, um, which is, it's not super hot, especially compared with our, our Portuguese Camino from last year. But that was one of the hottest days that we had. And we arrived again quite early because we had a fairly short stage and they had a pool and we were able to go and refresh in the pool. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you just get to take a break from being a pilgrim for just a few hours. Yeah, yeah. And um, no, it was definitely worth it. And yeah, really refreshed us. And yeah, I, I do see the appeal of making those little splurges every now and then. When you're on Camino. Yeah, if you find something that fits in terms of in terms of the price or in terms of maybe if you've had a long stage, you know, it can be it can be something that's really nice. Mm-hmm. So we might look into that a little bit in the future, um, but we will see. We'll see. All right. And so until next time, bon Camino. And buen Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.